are going to continue on in our series in what? The book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. We are looking at a message entitled One in a Million. One in a Million. Um, I got to be honest with you guys. It was really cool last week uh, to study a genealogy with you guys and for you to like pay attention and actually want to learn. Uh, It's been really cool seeing what God's been doing on these Wednesdays as what we have been going over is deep stuff uh, that is that is not for the the faint hearted. And uh, it's been really cool to see you guys respond and take notes. And uh, that's our heart. We want to see you guys grow. And we know that the way that you grow is to invest time, effort and energy into the word of God. And so my job as your pastor, as I preach to you and teach the word of God, is to be clear, is to be biblical. But then your job as the the hearer is to be engaged, is to have your Bibles open, is to have those notes going and allowing God to speak to you. Uh, I'm not sure what goes through your mind during uh, the studies together, But I hope that there is at least an open mind to what God might be speaking to you. Uh, This is not simply just to learn uh, something knowledge-wise, but it is to grow in our walks with God. I mean, that during even tonight, as we talk about Genesis chapter 6, and we begin talking about Noah, uh, a Bible character that is no doubt familiar to most of us in this room, that God would want to take this character and the story that we're familiar with and use that to, to stir us up in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so I'm uh, just excited to, to dive back in today. Now, during our time last week, we looked at that genealogy and Acts chapter 5 uh, kind of acts as this transition chapter uh, for you and I where a lot of years pass in Genesis chapter 5, right? Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, pretty quick after uh, the creation account. But now uh, hundreds of years pass by in Genesis chapter 5 as it goes from uh, uh, person to person. And now today we come to Noah, who is 10th in line from Adam. And we actually pick it up about a thousand years into creation, So from the moment that God created everything, about a thousand years later, Noah was born. About 10, he's the the 10th from Adam, being about a thousand years from the beginning of creation. And so uh, we begin to shift focus today because, listen up, for the next five chapters, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, all have to do with Noah. They are primarily focused on this man, the famous Noah of the Bible. And I can tell you guys, after studying today, if you need someone to build you a boat, I know a guy, all right? That's my, I had to put in one joke, okay? Now, Genesis chapter 5, the last verse ends with Noah and his sons, okay? Look at Genesis 5 and look at the very last verse. There's this transition. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. How would you like if your name was Ham? That's pretty cool. Um, chapter 5 ends this way uh, to set us up as we look to Noah, who truly is one in a million. 
Well, let's pray together. Father, as we jump into this little kind of mini-series within our series of Genesis 1 through 11, focused on Noah, God, we pray that you would just fill us up with the knowledge of who you are. Lord, that by the end of these studies, that we wouldn't just know more things, but we would, Lord, know in a deeper way of who you are, because we know that you have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. And so, God, we'd see your character and your nature. And Lord, this story that each of us know on a surface type of level, Lord, but when we begin to dive deeper, the richness of your scriptures just jump jump out at us on these pages. And so, God, we pray that you'd bring clarity, that you'd bring instruction, and that you would bring change in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, as you're taking notes tonight, we're first going to look at the crazy culture. Hundreds of years have passed, and the culture has gotten truly crazy. Let's read together verses 1 through 7, and then we'll also read verses 11 and 12 that talk to us about the state of the world at this time. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beasts and creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Then jump down to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Well, as chapter six opens up, it's beyond clear that the world has gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Not really Cocoa Puffs, but they've gone crazy. We are given this initial phrase of now it came to pass. You guys see that in verse one? Now it came to pass. We know that the year that chapter six opens up is 2228 BC, 2228 BC. How do we know that? because we know what year the flood came, right? Do you guys remember that we talked about that last, last week? And we know that the flood came 1,656 years into creation. And so what we open up to in chapter six initially is the year 1,536. That's how many years it has been since creation. And we are told that there was a population boom. Man began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, at face value, uh, this is a good thing. Remember God's original design? Be fruitful and multiply. And so at first glance, you could see, oh man, man is doing what God has commanded them to do. The problem was the type of people that began filling the earth. 
Now, as we just read this, and I don't know how much you caught as we read through it, but there is clearly something very weird, wild, and evil happening in this text. He says that his spirit, look at verse three, his spirit can no longer put up with mankind. And so mankind only has 120 years left to get it right. That's how I was able to give you the dates that I gave you. It's because we know from this point, God says, I'm done. This world is nuts. And 120 years from now, things are going to change. The flood would come. And we're told one of the reasons that God came to this, this point where his grace ran out and his wrath was now 120 years out was because we're told, notice in the text, that the sons of God married the daughters of men. It's a weird way to put that. The sons of God married the daughters of men. We're told that as a result, there were giants on the earth and these were mighty men and men of renown. Sons of God, if you are taking notes, sons of God carries it with the idea of being created directly by God. Adam was initially a, a son of God because God created him. But Adam's descendants were no longer sons of God. They were sons of Adam and sons of Seth and whoever it might have been. We believe based upon other scriptures that what is being referred to here is angels. Sons of God is equivalent to the idea of angels. And specifically what's being referred to is not angels in heaven, but angels in a sense in hell, fallen angels along with Lucifer himself. Now, we're not gonna get into the details of this, but essentially what is happening here is fallen angels marrying and procreating with human women. A very bizarre, a very disgusting, a very abominable thing to God's original design. God's original design was that a human man and a human woman would come together and fill the earth. Well, we see that at this point, the world has gotten so nuts, so wild, that anything is possible. This seems to be a satanic attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman. Do you guys remember back in Genesis 3, the fall, when God promised that through the seed of the woman that one would come and though his heel would be bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent, the first reference to the gospel? Well, Satan knew that that would be his ultimate downfall, and so he went after the woman. Satan almost succeeded. The race was so polluted that God found it necessary to start again with Noah and his sons and to imprison these demons so that they could never do this again. Now, this craziness that this is what we just read, this is what is happening. This craziness seems to be the basis for a lot of Greek mythology. I don't know how uh, aware you are of Greek mythology, but within Greek mythology, this type of thing is actually glorified. You have these demi-gods. You have these, th this cross between the immortal and the mortal. And in Greek mythology, it's glorified. But we see right here, God condemns what is happening. So much so, God's like, we gotta start over. Because men has become so evil that they have done the unthinkable. 
Jude makes reference to this and connects it with what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Translations, the angels that were involved in this craziness, he has judged them. And he will continue to judge them. Verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth and as, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal hellfire. What was happening here was condemned by God. God said, this is enough. There comes a point when God says enough is enough. And we know that's going to happen again, maybe not in the same way. We know the judgment's going to be different. The judgment's going to involve fire, not water. But there is going to again come a point where God says he looks down at earth and he says they have gone too far. Doesn't it kind of seem like we're getting at least closer when we begin to look around in our world and society and you got to think, God's, where is his breaking point? Because there is a point when his grace runs out, his patience and long-suffering, and God says, we have to do something about it. So I have to admit to you guys, this is kind of wild. And even in studying and preparing, I was like, how much do I tell them? But this is what the Bible says. And listen, this is a picture that things continue to get crazier and crazier in a culture that rejects the word of God in their life. That's why what we're experiencing now in our world 10 years ago was unfathomable. It was unthinkable. And 10 years from now, there will be greater evils because man without God is destined for great evil. Now, the problem with this, uh, not only was there this problem, but as a result, look at verse 11 and 12. Look back in your Bibles. We had jumped uh, from verse seven to verse 11 and 12. Those verses tell us that as a result of this weirdness and this craziness, there was corruption and great violence on the earth. Our, our best kind of understanding is everyone was killing everyone. It was just absolute chaos and pandemonium. And the earth was filled. It didn't say just some parts were filled with violence and corruption. The whole thing was nutty. Now look at Genesis six twelve. It says, so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their, their own, their, their way on the earth. Something to note down specifically about Genesis 6, 12. That is the middle verse between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. And that's our series. Remember, we're not going through the whole book of Genesis. There's 50 chapters. Ain't no way we're going to do it. But we are going to get to chapter 11. And these are those foundational chapters for you and I. And within these 11 chapters, the middle point is Genesis chapter 6, verse 12. And I just think it's interesting that although the earth, those on the earth had stopped looking to God, God had never stopped looking toward the earth. And so we find as well in verse 3, we talked about it, made quick reference. Verse 3 sets a countdown timer of God's judgment of the flood, 120 years. Notice what, what he says here. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. He says, I'm done. For he is indeed flesh, 
yet his days shall be 120 years. Basically, this is a countdown timer that God says 120 years from now, game over. The year would be, if you are taking notes, 1,536. That, that, that's from the point of creation. 1,536 years would have passed because we know that the flood will happen 120 years later, which is the year 1,656. Now, what does this show us? Why didn't God just cut it off then? He said, not, forget 120 years. You have 120 seconds. Well, 2 Peter 3.9 says this about the nature of God. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, he, he's going to follow through. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the same thing. Why does God delay today? Is our world not evil enough for God to come back and judge and it would be like a great thing? Absolutely. But you see, what's, what is stopping God? It's God's long-suffering and love. His desire is that no one would perish, but that maybe one more person would come to repentance. Well, at this time in history, he looked around, and other than Noah, he saw that no one would come to repentance. Now quickly, notice verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 is God's evaluation of kind of everything. We, we find out here, starting in verse 5, he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, notice, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Man, what a sentence. So externally, God says, really wicked, great wickedness, externally. But internally, God has the ability to see into man's heart. So God looked into man's heart and he said, man, is there any, is there goodness? Is there any of, of those that are going to come and, and put their faith in me and repent of their sin? And he said, absolutely not. He said that he looked into the heart of, of millions of people and he didn't see goodness. He saw only evil continually. This is very contrary to what the world preaches and teaches. The world preaches and teaches that man is mostly good or deep down is good. Now, any goodness that we have, it's as a result that we've been made in the image of God. But God apart, sorry, man apart from God is this, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? The answer to that question is God. God knows it. And he's the only one that can do anything about it. But he will never step past our free will. And he was able to see mankind and see that their free will was debased. It was to the point of destruction. And so we're told that God comes to this place where he was actually sorry that he ever made man and this grieved the heart of God. Now, a few things to note about this. If you're taking notes, just note down, God was sorry is really strange to hear. I mean, notice what verse six, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Now, this sounds really strange, but other translations use the word regret. Now, how does a God who the scriptures say does not change, 
He is immutable. That's the big theological word. God has never changed. He never will change. He's always the same. So how does a God who never changed, knows the end from the beginning, so he already knew what was going to happen, how does he come to this place where he's actually regretful or sorry? What's the deal? Well, while the nature of God doesn't change, the actions of God can change based upon the actions of others. We know this. Have you ever read the story of Jonah? Remember the, the, the commandment that he told, the message that he told Jonah to go and preach? 40 days and Nineveh falls. Did Nineveh fall in 40 days? No. Why? Because the people changed their actions. They repented. And so God changed his actions. We also saw this with Saul being king. Saul was, an, was, was picked by God after the people obviously had their little hissy fit, but Saul was king and God was, was okay, let's, let's go. But then because of Saul's disobedience, God's choice for king changes. So it's not that the nature of God changes, but it's that the actions of God change based upon the actions of his, of his creation. Does that make sense? So God was in that moment regretful, sorry. It's not that he didn't know, but it's that he, he, he didn't want to have to send the flood. He wanted, remember his desire was that everyone would not perish but come to repentance. But the reality and the truth of the matter was that was not going to happen. And so not only was he sorry, but notice God was grieved. We're told that God was grieved over this. He was grieved in his heart, says verse 6. That's kind of interesting as well. Though God knows how everything is going to turn out, it still causes him sorrow. Don't think just because God knew the actions of the people that would disobey him, it doesn't cause this numbness that he doesn't feel it. You and I have feelings because God feels it wasn't something that surprised him, but it still affected him, right? And so God, we're told in scripture, has the ability to feel sorrow, grief. Ephesians 4.30 is a New Testament verse that tells us, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Meaning even now, when we sin against God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. It's not that God just is offended by sin, but it actually hurts who he is, which is a crazy thought to think, but it's what the scriptures say. Now, these verses paint a very grim picture of the state of mankind, but we're very thankful for verse eight as a glimmer of hope. The chosen chap. Now, (laughs) Um, I, I, I wanted to go with the C's, and so chap is what I chose, okay? So we have the, the crazy culture, but we also have the chosen chap, okay? And, uh, and that chap, that person, is Noah. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the chosen chap. Tate loves, loves that one. Now, within all the negativity surrounding the state of the world, 
There was one man who stood out from the rest, and his name was Noah. He truly was one in a million. We're told that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you have your own Bible tonight, circle verse 8. We're very grateful for this verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's judgment is coming. It will be there in 120 years. But there's this man named Noah that again affected the actions of God. Now, notice it says he found this grace. It's not the idea that Noah went searching for it, but rather the Lord found Noah. It wasn't something that Noah earned or won. It was something that was found, simply found. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God at all times is always looking at the hearts of men, not just when things get really bad, but he's looking for those who are loyal to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I believe God's even doing this right now in this room. God, the Holy Spirit is in this place and God is looking at your heart and he's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for talent or ability. He is looking to see if you are loyal to him. Do you trust him? Do you look to him? Because God was about to show himself strong on Noah's behalf and God saw that Noah had this loyal heart. That is why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is what made him stand out from the rest. While everyone else was doing their own thing, Noah was loyal to his God. And so God desired to show him grace. Another word for grace is favor, compassion, kindness. How could he, along with the rest of the evil world, just throw Noah into the flood? No, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just. And so we're given some descriptions about Noah. And I think the order is intentional. Look in your Bibles, look at verses 8 through 10. There's a few different descriptions given. So if you are taking notes, note down, number one, he found grace. Okay? And again, I think this order is extremely intentional uh, by the Holy Spirit. He found grace. It's not that he went looking. It's that God found him and showed him. He saw that loyal heart. Number two, though, we're told in verse 9 that Noah was a just man. That means that he was righteous or made right with God. Now, the only reason that he was a just man was because he had found that grace in the eyes of the Lord. You take away number one, you ain't getting number two. So number one, he found grace. Number two, he was just or righteous. And number three, we're told that he was perfect. Now, don't get the wrong idea. The word perfect here doesn't mean that he never sinned. A better translation would be the word blameless. There was no one that was able to come and accuse him. Do you guys remember in the story of Daniel in the lion's den when those who were jealous against Daniel as this 80-year-old man, I don't even know, but Daniel was like an 80-year-old man in Daniel in the lion's den. Anyway, so those people that wanted to get him were told that they looked in his life and found nothing, only that he prayed. 
right? And so they had to make up this dumb law and, and so on and so on. You guys remember the story? Yes? In a similar way, Noah was perfect, meaning he was above any accusation. You couldn't get anything against him. And especially he was perfect compared to the culture around him. He was truly one in a million. Now, this is always how the order goes with those that walk with God. That God initiates and we are, he, he is looking and he spots this little glimmer of loyalty and faith and trust. And so we respond, obviously, in faith. God then justifies us. He makes us right with him. Noah was a just man. And then works in us, and it begins to show to those around us. Noah's reputation was a holy roller. His reputation was known He probably got made fun of. He probably got looked at of, oh man, look at this guy. But it wasn't because he was prideful. It's because he was loyal to the Lord. We're told that Noah walked with God. This is that same word that was used of Enoch. You guys remember Enoch from last week? That he walked with God and then was not because God took him. Yet Noah, though he walked with God like Enoch, God chose not to take him out of it, but to see him through the coming judgment. Uh, Noah in, in scripture is mentioned a few other places. You can note it down. Like Enoch, Noah right after Enoch is mentioned in that hall of faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. That's where we find different Old Testament uh, people that are mentioned. They get a shout out in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 11, verse 7, says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. This is how we know that the story of the flood and Noah and the ark is not this poetical, fun story. It's not just so children's ministry has some curriculum during the year. This actually happened. And that's why thousands of years later, the writer of Hebrews would refer to Noah as an actual person who was motivated by his godly reverence and fear of the Lord. You can quickly note down, he, he gets a shout out in Ezekiel 14, 14 as well. He says, even in these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. That Noah had this reputation that even preceded him and went beyond him, that he had a relationship that was right with God. And then last thing before we move on to our final point is that Peter describes him as a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter Uh, Chapter two, verse five says, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, there's kind of two two trains of thoughts here. It says that he's a preacher of righteousness. If you're not taking, if you are taking notes, you want to write that down, a preacher of righteousness. Now, some people think that he legitimately preached So like during those years that he built the ark, 
it was not only a building ministry, but it was a preaching ministry. Some people don't think that was the case, but just the, the fact alone that Noah was building a giant boat thing, not really even a boat that you could steer, more just a floating wood box in the middle of the desert, that that was message enough to show that God, God's judgment was coming. And we don't exactly know, but nonetheless, his life was a testament to the righteousness of God. He, there was this clear understanding. People, based on this, people knew who Noah was. Not because he wanted the popularity, but because he lived so counter to the culture. Now let's, let's look at what's next to see why all these things are said about Noah. That, that's the description of Noah. Uh, but third and finally, we come to our uh, last point with uh, the C's, the covenantal command. Now that might sound really big, uh, but you guys know the word covenant, I would hope. The covenant, right? It's a, we see that throughout the scripture. God had a covenant with, with Abraham. He had, a, he had a covenant with, with Isaac. He had a covenant, and it was all the, that was all the same. And then we know in the New Testament, Jesus brings in the what covenant? The new covenant, right? And which is, right, when at communion, he says, this is the new covenant, my, my body, my blood, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes? So the covenantal, don't look at that like it's scary. It's not. The covenantal command, meaning that what we're going to see in these, these concluding verses uh, of Genesis chapter 6 is God's covenant, his promise, but also his command, okay? And they go together. Notice in your Bibles, verse 13. And God said to Noah, you guys following along? Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits, it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Note that down. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and every creeping thing after the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself all of all food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. We find here in verse 13, the word of the Lord coming directly to Noah. The exact means of how God communicated is not explicitly mentioned. We don't know, but nonetheless, in some capacity, God communicated with Noah. And at this point, the 120 year time clock that we saw in verse three has already been started but we don't know exactly how much time has passed in between the clock 
starting and the Lord speaking to Noah. Some people believe that this took place immediately after that Noah had 120 years to build the ark, that God gives the, the proclamation that 120 years and I'm done, and then Noah got to work. However, others believe there were some years that had passed in between the countdown and this encounter. Lean in and listen up, okay? We know this. This is what we know factually from Scripture. Follow me. Noah was 600 years old when the flood happened, okay? You guys got that? We're told in the next chapter, his 600th birthday, flood happens. Happy birthday. 120 years before that, right? Because we know God set that countdown timer. So 120 years, Noah would have been 440 years old. Does that make sense? We are told... Remember the last verse in Genesis chapter five, we're told that when Noah was 500 years old, that Shem, his firstborn son, was born to him. And then we know that his other two at some point were born after, remember our buddy Ham and Japheth, okay? Now you might say, okay, so what, what does this matter? Now notice God mentions that this covenant would not only be with Noah, but look back in your Bibles. You got to stay with me at verse 18. He said, I will establish this with you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. So if Noah is 440 years old, when the countdown timer is ticking, 20 years into that countdown timer, he has his sons. His sons get a little bit older, at some point get married, okay? And they have their wives by the time that God gives this command and covenant to Noah, which tells us Noah did not have 120 years. Based on this line of reasoning, Ken Ham believes that Noah would have had more like 55 to 75 years at the most uh, of years to build the ark. Now, Scripture doesn't give us the exact time frame, but if we do a little bit of deduction, which is what we just did, we, we made some uh, references based upon our knowledge, then we know if the 120-year countdown timer is here, he's 440 years old, 600 years old is how old he was when that happened. He has kids at 500. Those kids get a little bit older. They have wives. And by the time that all three of them have wives, that's when God says. So we don't know exactly. Scripture doesn't give it. But that's something just for you to keep free of charge. Okay? All right. Now, notice, though, look back in your Bibles. Notice that God shares with Noah not only what he is going to do, which was to destroy everyone, but how he is going to do it. He tells him that a flood is going to come. Noah, remember, had a relationship with God. And a, and a relationship always goes both ways. He walked with God. And we see the same thing with Abraham. If you know anything about the, the man Abraham, we see that, that God spoke with Abraham in a similar way before he was gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember how Abraham's cousin Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
And so God says, basically, God talks amongst the Trinity, and he says, look, we got to tell Abraham. Like, he's our, you know, we walk with him. We're close to him. We got to tell him what's happening. And so they say, hey, Abraham, like, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's when Abraham says, wow, like, what if there was, like, 100 righteous that were still in the city? If you guys don't know the story, that, that's kind of, you go and read it, okay, in the, in the book of Genesis. But it's this idea where God's kind of sharing this insight with Noah because he has this relationship with him. And so we see that after God shares this plan, that he gives this command, okay? Notice in your Bibles, look at verse 14. It says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, <laughs> Uh, and he begins to give him the, the type. He says, hey, this is how I want you to make it. He doesn't just say, good luck. You need to make it big enough for all the animals and make sure you have enough food. No, he gives him some detailed destruction. He doesn't just leave him, uh, not destruction, instruction. Uh, he doesn't just leave him on his own. But I do want you to notice something, that within this command given, God tells Noah that he is going to establish this covenant with him. This is the first time in scripture that we see that word covenant used. It's very, uh, it's, it's going to be mentioned many more times in scripture, but this is the first time. And listen, a covenant is more than a contract. It's not just an agreement. If you're taking notes, a covenant is a sacred promise. And whenever God promises something to mankind, he always holds up his end of the promise. But not too often does mankind hold up their end. And so with the law, even with Noah, he, Noah held up his end, at least till after, right? He, he was saved. His end was to obey. But we see with Israel, that covenant that he had with them, it's everlasting. Meaning God is going to, he's not done with them because he holds up his end. But there were consequences even within the covenant. That's what's actually so cool about the New Testament covenant is that, we can never do anything to, to break that. But that's a topic for another day. Now, as we close this, I want you to look at the very last verse of Genesis chapter 6. Very last verse. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, it seems repetitious. Look at the verse on the screen or in your Bibles. It like says the same thing almost, almost three times. Thus Noah did. Like he did what God said. According to all that God commanded, so he did. There is an emphasis that Noah obeyed God without hesitation. No complaints are mentioned. He doesn't say, but, but, but. Now he, he might have done those things, but, the, but really the way that the verse says is like, he says, aye, aye, captain, like, let's, let, yes, Lord, I walk with you, let's, let's, let's do this. And we see there are three other references. Those references are in the next chapter. Those tell us again that God, that Noah did all that God had commanded. Now, think about the level of Noah's obedience. This was a huge deal. God commanded him to build a boat. Not in the middle or by the water, in a desert. At this point, there had never been any kind of flood ever in 1,000, 
536 years, however many years it was, there'd never been a flood because listen, there had never been one drop of rain. Pre-flood, there was no rain. That's why we see when the flood happens, that water comes down from heaven, comes up from the earth. The, the uh, geographical changes that happened after the flood were ginormous and, and the, everything changed. Everything that you learned in science class uh, of how like precipitation and all those different things, the whole cycle, how it all works, it was different before. So Noah is hearing from God, hey, there's gonna be a flood and it's going to kill everyone. And so what I want you to do about it is to build a boat. Now we don't exactly know, you know, who knew and who didn't know about this, but he at least did it for, you know, what would, what would seem like at least 50 years. It would take a long time to build a boat that size. Now, I think this is significant because we got to remember what kind of person Noah was. What, what, what was his motivation? Remember, I shared with you Hebrews 11.7. So by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, he had never seen, this was unheard of, never before happened. It would sound ridiculous to anyone, but what was his motivation? He was moved with godly fear. You see, it goes, it goes back to his loyalty for God, he trusted him. He respected God. He honored God. And so listen, when God told him something he didn't understand, it didn't change his course. Just because he couldn't see it and see how it all worked out, he did what God had said. Jesus said this about himself. In John eight twenty nine. last verse for the night. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, and catch this last sentence, for I always do the things that please him. Now, none of us can make that statement. None of us can say tonight, I always do the things that please him. That was Jesus saying that. But can we say, I want to always do the things that please him? Is it in our heart to say that th that is our goal? Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, my aim is to please him. Is this what we strive for? You see, Noah, not that it wasn't a big command. I'm, I'm sure it was a big deal to Noah. And I'm sure there was times of struggle and what the heck is going on. And how, you know, 20 years into building the ark, that he's like, what am I doing? No doubt there's moments of doubt and struggle. But the way that the Bible depicts that, we don't see any doubt. He's mentioned in the hall of faith that not that it was just another day, but for Noah, it was like, God, if you tell me to do this, like I'm going to do it. And I think for us, the, the lesson is, is clear. Will we do what God says? Is that something that we even think about? I mean, think about today. Don't, don't say anything out loud, but how many times did you consider what I am doing? Is it pleasing to the Lord? You see, I think we should take this phrase that Jesus says, for I always do those things that please him. And we should make it our own in the sense, I always seek to do the things that please him. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. 
But God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for loyalty. And God says, if you can stay loyal to me and, and desire to please me and do things when I ask you to do them, you don't understand why. Other people would think it's ridiculous. But will you obey me? And God says, if that's you, then I will show myself strong in your life. Man, what it must have been like for Noah when it all came true. When finally the floodwaters came and he closes up the ark. And you see, one day you and I are going to get to heaven. And we're going to be so grateful, so thankful for the times that we did please God. Those are going to be the best memories that we have on earth. Not when we went on vacation or did this or that. The best memories we'll have in heaven is when we did what pleased the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is our heart's desire. And Lord, if it's not, would you change our hearts? For I always do the things that please him. Lord, we know that that is an inattainable goal. But it is one we want to strive for. And we want to walk with you. We want to be as Noah was, a just man, perfect in all his generations, blameless, above reproach, not perfect, but in pursuit. Lord, the, the world would, would look in at, Lord, even tonight, that we have gathered here to worship an invisible God, to hear a story that would be a fable to anyone else, to read from a book that we say is the very words of God that was written thousands of years ago, it would look absurd. But this is what you've told us. This is what you've commanded us. And so out of obedience, we are here. And out of obedience, we want to keep walking with you. For we know that we are to walk by faith as Noah did and, and not by sight. And I don't think for any of us, you're going to ask us to build a boat. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. But what about the smaller things? You would ask us to be kind. You would ask us to be generous. You would command us all these different things. And Lord, I would think all of us tonight would say, oh, I would totally, I would do what Noah did. I, I would build the boat. But can we say that if we, if we don't even obey you in the little things? God, would you help us to just have eyes to please you? We look to you this night as we want to worship you because you are worthy, because you are God and there is no other. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.